This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Religious Refugees, Deconstructing Towards Spiritual and Emotional Healing. Have you been questioning your faith and spiritual beliefs while leaving the familiarity of your religious homeland? Have you been negatively affected by toxic religion, knowing in your heart of hearts there must be a more liberating spiritual way? Have you experienced loneliness, isolation, and fear of rejection from religious others just because you are a more inclusive, creative, and expansive person? Join the legion of others on the road to healing and self-discovery and let Dr. Mark Karras' book, Religious Refugees, be your guide. Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is not church. With John and Nat Turney. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, this is not church is what we've called it. How's that for a uh, an area diet <laughs> and also a semi-glib way to... This is what we've called it, John. This is just where we've landed. Because, you know, like we like to say all the time... This is where we are. This is where we are. This is who we... This is who we is. If it was church, by the way, you would have left by now. True. And, uh, you know, we'd, we'd probably come with you. But we are... Man, we're just overjoyed. We are honored. We are... John, the caliber of people that you somehow managed to book on this show, <laughs> I don't think you get enough credit. I um, it's just incredible. But And there are days like today where I am borderline intimidated because the person that we're going to talk to today is John Caputo. And I can, I can blow smoke now because he's being recorded and he has to be nice. But and this is a towering <laughs> intellect. This is a guy who... I consider him in many ways to be the father of the modern deconstruction movement. I'm not sure that's a, a moniker he would embrace. But as I go back and reread books that he wrote 15 or 20 years ago, I'm like, oh my gosh, like this was all, he's been talking about this for a long time. We all thought we thought of something new, but no, John Caputo has been talking about it forever. So uh, let me let me read you a little bit of a bio that I got for him. We'll see how much of it's accurate and he can correct anything that's not right. And then we're going to go jumping into talking about his new book because like all great writers and thinkers, he's he's still putting out great work and great content. So John David Caputo is an American philosopher who is the Thomas J. Watson Professor of Religion Emeritus at Syracuse University and the David R. Cook Professor of Philosophy Emeritus at Villanova University. Caputo is a major figure associated with postmodern Christianity and continental philosophy of religion, as well as the founder of the theological movement known as weak theology. Much of Caputo's work focuses on hermeneutics, phenomenology, deconstruction, and theology. There you go. That's about it in a nutshell. Is any of that incorrect, Mr. Caputo? (laughs) (laughs) All true. It's it's the gospel truth. There we go. All right. I know we've we've managed to take your entire life and sum it up in one (laughs) neat little paragraph. So, but that's just a jumping off one. If you are listening to the podcast and you are unaware, that's okay. That's okay. You you are entitled to be wrong. You should know who John Caputo is. Come on, man. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not critical. But uh, I am. I'm in, in that case. I'm actually really, really jealous that you get to discover his work for the first time. Because man, you get to just dive into a whole like an entire body of work that is incredible. My first introduction was probably the insistence of God, and it just kind of pulled my hair back and put my you know. It's just it's and now actually I'm rereading it. I told John today. I don't pay as much attention to our calendar as I should. I usually look at, I usually look up on Monday, go, Hey, who's, who's on? And I just did a double take. I'm like, Whoa, 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 hang on a second. And texted John. I'm like, we're, we're interviewing John Caputo. What? <laughs> it's like, so I said, I'm going to, so I actually have been rereading insistence of God and I've been trying to dig into a little bit of your new book as well, which is called remind me, John, what's the name of the new book? What to believe? What to believe? Okay. It's a question mark, not a it's not a not a dogmatic statement. It's a question mark. What to what to believe? What the title I originally gave it uh, was what What can we really believe? And um, the editors uh, changed it. And <laughs> to what, as, as editors what to do. <laughs> so yeah, I figure they know more about. Uh, selling books than I do. So I said, okay. And then the subtitle is 12 Brief Lessons in Radical Theology. And it's divided into two sections. So it's like two weeks. The first week, six days, and then we take the Sabbath off. And then the second week, six days, and then we take the Sabbath off. So we got two weeks of 12 lessons, which... Try to uh, identify in a way that is not 
meant to be technical. It is coming from a university press book, a bookseller, Columbia University Press. But it's not academic prose. It's meant for a general audience. I try to identify what is, given the premise that religion is making itself unbelievable, what can we believe? What, what can we really believe? What, what is it that we, uh, in our heart of hearts, believe? And that requires making a distinction between beliefs and faith. And I say that beliefs are something that gets in your head as an accident of birth, whereas faith has to do with the more uh, elemental makeup of human, uh, the human constitution. And um, because if you were, I always like to use the, the image of this being switched at birth. If you were switched at birth, there are, there are stories and novels that, that proceed from that premise. If you were switched at birth with someone from the heart of Islam, you would have grown up you know, a completely different set of beliefs in your head. So it, that can't be what's really going on when we believe in, particularly with religious beliefs. What something is going on in all that, which is what we really believe. And that's what, that's what I try to identify. I love it. Yeah, John. Other John. <laughs> I need to be careful. There's two Johns in a room. So, yeah, by the way, we can solve that problem by, by uh, calling me Jack. I okay, go, Jack. I go, Perfect. I go by Jack, actually. All right. The only place, John D. Caputo is a pseudonym. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. No, well, I mean, we... it's, actually, it's actually my legal name, but everybody. Okay. <laughs> yeah, just like, yeah, just like John Kennedy, just like. Uh... Yeah, I, like, I, I go by Jack. I was, you know, that was my, my family name at home and my friends and anybody who knows me well calls me Jack. Awesome. Okay. So we can solve the John. There's only we'll, one John. We'll, we'll solve the John problem by, I do, I do, I do appreciate that at some point I might say, so what's the fact, Jack? And you would know that I was talking. About <laughs> <laughs> that sounds, that sounds like something I'm, I would do. All right, John, what were you going to say? So I'm not going to, you know, like I'm, gonna, I'm not going to bore our listeners. They've heard, they've heard my backstory a lot, but I mean, that was one of the questions when I left, you know, cause I left the church the first time and for the longest time when I was around 18 or 19 years old. And one of the questions that I asked was that, you know, I am, I am who I am by an accidental, by the accident of birth. I accident, you know, there is no, there's nothing other than I was born into the United States within a Protestant white family and I'm raised this way. So one of the hard questions for me was, well, what if I was born Muslim? So then I'm, then I'm just wrong. All, all of my beliefs, everything that I'm brought up to believe is just wrong. And it's just by this accidental of birth that I was, I was given the right answer. Yeah. Right. And that was, it was one of those questions I asked in Sunday school or youth group or whatever that got the, uh, well, his ways are higher than our ways, you know, a very unuseful answer and started me down this road of, I don't, I don't think I can, I don't think I can be in this realm anymore. And so that, 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 that interests me because it is a tough question. And if, if you're intellectually honest with yourself, it's a question you have to ask, right? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. I, I like to say it's a great way to grow up as long as you do grow up. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I had a comparable experience growing up in a very Catholic uh, world. And uh, I, you, you said you were asking questions. I didn't ask a lot of questions in those days. I, I was... I thought that was it. I had the gift of the gift of faith, and I, when I graduated from high school, I joined the Catholic Religious Order, and I spent four years in there studying theology. And as I, in it was a Catholic in the Catholic tradition, if you study theology, you study philosophy because it's it's rooted in it's not it's not Bible thumping. It's uh, it's serious intellectual work. So I spent a great deal of time as a young man trying to penetrate and get to the bottom of Catholic theology as it was being expounded by Thomas Aquinas, who was the great master of the Catholic tradition. 
And he was rooted, his work is rooted in Greek philosophy. That was Luther's complaint, right? This is not the New Testament, it's Greek philosophy. And that was not wrong. <laughs> Luther wasn't wrong. It was a brilliant articulation of, of Catholic tradition, Christian tradition, in, in the language of Greek philosophy, but it was it was that. So, so in the con consequently, I had spent a lot of time studying Greek philosophy, and then I began to ask questions because I had I had to study philosophy, and to get philosophy right, you can't just we we were given the impression that philosophy began in Greece and then culminated in the 13th century. Right, <laughs> and uh, you know, it's all been downhill since. You know, <laughs> so we we graduated from from uh, Catholic college, and we were fully prepared to face the 13th century. <laughs> so it was studying philosophy that got me, in order to understand Catholic theology, that got me worrying about Catholic theology. And eventually, I I left the religious order, and I got my degree in philosophy, and I began teaching philosophy. And then I had a period there where I wasn't. I sort of thought it's it's just you know it was the myth of my childhood, but it never it never would leave me alone. I you know no matter what I when I started working on some philosophical problem, I found myself pushing through to the religious dimension, theological dimension of it. And so my first two books were written when I was still pretty Catholic. One was and they both had to do with Heidegger. One was on Heidegger and medieval mysticism, Meister Eckhart, and the other was on Heidegger and my the master of my youth, Thomas Aquinas. And then, then I broke out. I broke loose in the, the this book called Radical Hermeneutics, and I uh, and the the the, the key. The, 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 well, there were several masters in that book: Heidegger, Nietzsche, Husserl, and Derrida. And then Derrida sort of loosened my tongue. And I wrote Radical Hermeneutics is the first time. I didn't just write a book expounding what Heidegger said or Meister Eckhart said or Thomas Aquinas said. I started to speak for myself. And when I did, I started going back to theological issues. So these theological, this theological and Catholic Christian religious origin was also going to be my future in in an important way. And so I never really, you know, I didn't blow it up. I didn't, I didn't try to destroy it. I tried to reimagine it and reinvent it because I thought it still was, that deep down there was something going on there. It just wasn't what they were telling us when we were growing up. And I, that's what, in a way, I've been doing for the better part of my life, trying to figure out what's really going on there that isn't the line they were giving us when we were growing up. Because I think something is. I think something of elemental importance is going on there. But I don't think that, I think that orthodoxy has rigidified it, freeze-dried it, and turned it into, a, you know, a dogma. And draped it in authority, put it into a horror story of life after death and if you're a healthy teenager and you're having what the nuns called impure thoughts, you better watch out because he's watching and he's counting. He's, he's got a book there and he's marking everyone down and he's coming to get you at the end and you're going to be sorry because then you've got eternal fire to deal with. So so the, they did a fairly good job of ruining something pretty important. You know, but There's nothing wrong with God. It's just that God's fallen into the wrong hands. You know, of, of religious people and people who confuse themselves with God. And it's so it's our work, the work of people who want to think about this without the terror of supernaturalism, to, but to think about it and just radically, you know, honestly, to sort out what's really going on there. So you, you bring up orthodoxy, and for me, I, I have this weird love-hate relationship with orthodoxy because I think there's a lot of beauty there. You know, I can, I can, I can listen to, like, the liturgical prayers or the, or the songs, and it's, and, it's, and it's beautiful. And it, brings me to, it can bring me to tears when I, hear these, when I hear these prayers and I hear these songs. But then there's part of me that says, but, but they're not, they, don't, they don't have room for growth. 
because they are set in a situ a, a place and time, and they're not like you say you you were you were very well prepared for the 13th century, but you know beyond that, and like I said, it's it's beautiful. It brings me it can bring me to tears. It can bring me a connection to the divine. But at the same time, I feel like and and I don't know if I'm the only one that feels this, so I'm not sure. But I feel like they have left a lot of space for a lot of questions that they are not willing to move forward with. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, I mean, progressive theologians are not like that, right? I mean, they're push, progressive theologians are, are pushing the, the envelope. They're, they're, and you can, you can tell you've got one on your hands when they, when they get in trouble. <laughs> when they, <laughs> right. When they lose their job. If you say, yeah. You say, where, where can you find a progressive theologian? Well, one on the unemployment line. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but what you were saying about a hymn is good because the hymn, you know, one of the differences between philosophy and theology is that in theology, you can sing what you're talking about. <laughs> philosophy, you don't sing it, right? So, so the notion of hymn and of, of and of liturgy and of um, that's why you got to have tenure uh, so you can say the, the artistic <laughs> dimension, the artistic rendering of religious material is important. Now, because it's a it's a it's something going on in your bones, you know. It's not it's not a series of propositions. I mean, what happens with orthodoxy is it turns it into a series of propositions. It's not. It's pre-propositional. It's what's going on in your the depths of your experience, not a series of propositions that you're going to defend. And when you talk about religious art or, or religious poetry, I like to make a distinction between religious art or poetry or hymn or hymnology, which thinks of itself as ornamenting pre-existing dogma or doctrine. So it's like a decoration. You know, it, it, it sings a hymn of praise to something that we've got nailed down in the creed. Distinguish that from a more radical poetics, where the poetry, the hymn, the work of art is seeking words, seeking for figurative forms, artistic forms, to name something which can't be named, something un unnameable. So now the religious art is creative and productive. It's not ornamenting anything. It's it's groping for something. It's searching. It's searching um, in among the unknown. You know, it's it's like a blind man with a stick feeling around. So so then the work of art is actually very close to the heart of what theology is. And then instead of calling it theology, you can call it theopoetics. Because it's a kind of poetic creativity, which is trying to probe, to think, to meditate what's going on in this word, theos. Because something's going on. And I, 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 I don't want to make any predictions for it, because I think that it's being so badly bruised right now by the Christian right that it may not survive it. And it, it, religion and the name of God just may make itself so deplorable, so hateful, so resentful, so anti-intellectual and anti-scientific that it will just simply shrivel into a, a a rural patch, you know, and and not be worth the time of not be worth saving. That might I can see that happening because I I, I think that what's going on with religion right now is so demoralizing that uh, I can see that it's that that might happen. But so far it hasn't, and there's still a whole band of uh, progressive thinkers and radical thinkers and searchers and questioners who are trying to find something that we can really believe, which is what this book, book is about. Let's talk about this real quick then, because one of like you open up this book with the proposition that God does not exist. And obviously, I, I, You're I love about the existence of God now. Which book is this? The, this is the opening what, what the belief? The Lesson one of what to believe is God does not oh, okay. exist. And, and, I, and I mentioned offline that I felt like you were building off of the existence of God, which makes the same sort of assertion, right? And, and right. again, I, I, love, I love your sense of humor. If you ha- it, let's, let's make sure and say this. Your books are supremely readable. I know they are academic, and this one is more geared towards lay people like me. Um, and some of your other books would be more scholarly, probably. 
Um, but even those, I always found readable because you, you, you can't help but inject your humor into it. You can't help but, you know, be yourself in them. And so I, I think you say somewhere in there in early on that you're, yes, you're being provocative when you say stuff like that, but it's not without meaning. It's not provocating. It's not provoking simply for the cake, no, just, just to provoke, right? So if you say something like God does not exist to a bunch of theologians whose heads explode and you follow it up with, well, but this is what I mean. Expand on that if you would. Just kind of give us an idea where you're coming from as far as the so-called existence of God. Yeah, I think that, I think that God does not exist. I mean, I do think that there is a supreme being up there or out there or down there or somewhere who is identifiably, who answers to the name of God. I think that uh, now this at this point, this part of my argument, I'm drawing on Paul Tillich. And I'm saying God is God is not the supreme being. God is the ground of being. One of the most apt expressions in the scriptures is interesting. Is not really from the scriptures. It's it's, it's the uh, speech that Paul is supposed to have given on the Areopagus in the Acts of the Apostles. Now I say it's supposed to be because there's a lot of scholars who would say the Acts of the Apostles is a is a whitewash job, and uh, most of it is coming out of Luke's imagination. And there's a very good chance that Paul never, never laid eyes on the Areopagus. But anyway, when he gives a speech, he's about to, to the statue of the unknown God. At the end of it, he says, "As your own poets say, for for as your own poets say, God is that in which we live and move and have our being." Now that I think nails it. I think that is exactly what we want to, how we want to start thinking about God, as that in which we live and move and have our being. The way I, well, I think the way I say it in uh, the book is, if we were all aquatic creatures, God wouldn't be the biggest fish in the sea. God would be the ocean. God, God is the element of our life. God is the. Uh, dimension in which we exist. It's, it's this, the stuff of our being, the ground of our being in which we live and move. I think that that gets it. And But when you talk like that, then, then God doesn't sound like the, the big being in the sky, the big guy in the sky. It doesn't sound like the supreme being. It sounds like the very substance of reality. So the first requirement of what we mean by God has to be, it, it is unimpeachably given. It's not a statement on the table that we can argue about. It's given. It's like, uh, that's why I make a distinction between beliefs and faith. Beliefs are the things that are inside your head because of the place where you were born. They're an accident of birth. If you were born somewhere else, you'd have another set of beliefs. If you were, if you were born in an indigenous society in, um, in North America in the 18th century, or if you were born on the Hawaiian Islands, you would think the divine was all wrapped up with lava rock. If you were born in Islam, you would have another idea of God. If you were born a, a white male Christian in North America, you'll have another idea. Those things are all, they're not givens. They're, 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 they're not this pre-given, uh, 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 unimpeachable foundation of our lives. They're contingent facts. What we call God, what, what we mean by God is, is something that is unimpeachably foundational. And, and if you gave that up, you would just give up everything. And that would, so God is not a true being. God is truth itself. God is not a thing we love or a person we love. God is love itself. God is not a, an object of knowledge. God is the light in which we know something. Right? So God is this elemental thing. You, you might deny a proposition, but you would never deny the light in which we know things. You might deny this or that being, but you would never deny being itself or existence itself. So so what we mean by God has to do with the thing that you couldn't possibly deny. If you denied it, you would just be, you would not, not need a philosopher, you would need a couch. <laughs> <You'd>, <laughs> right. you know. Yeah, exactly. So God's like that. So God is not, God as a supreme being does not exist. The right, this is, now this is Paul Tillich verb, verbatim, the right response to that supreme being 
and to the attempt to prove the existence of such a being, the right religious and theological response is atheism. 100% agree. Yeah. And that atheism, that atheism is not the end of theology. It's the beginning of a radical theology, of another theology, a more radical one, which begins by saying God does not exist. So on the one hand, I'm trying to get in the face of orthodoxy and, and be provocative. But on the other hand, I am not kidding. Yeah, but you mean it, right? I mean, that's why I'm saying like, you're, you're not just being a provocateur just to screw with people. Yeah. Oh, so, so I, I, I am screwing with them, but I'm trying to get them by their attention. Yeah, but, but, you, but you mean it. <laughs> but because that's like my, because part of me, well, a couple thoughts were run through my head. One is that means that God cannot be exclusive then to one particular religious order or sector. Uh, otherwise, life is a secret game, and you've got to know the secret word. To, you know, life is a game show, and you've got to guess the secret word. That can't be right. It can't, it can't be, right? right? It, can't, it, can't, it can't be that 99% of the world is just through accident or birth just missed out, right? On this experience yeah. of God that they, that, like you just mentioned, is so foundational to existence, you couldn't possibly deny it. And so that foundational yeah. thing. What, yeah, so whatever God means, it's got to be like that. It's got to be that, this right? So in, in, so in one sense, we're being very apophatic, right? We're saying, okay, I, I may not know what God is, but I certainly know what God is not. Like I know that, like, like the way he's been described as omnipotent by so many, at least in that, like the way that omnipotence has been framed for us. He can't be that. I mean, and that's a big sticking point for me. The it's a personification. I mean, what you, what right. you do, what, what you've done basically is personify the, the, the deep elements of our life, the deep structures of our existence get personified and then, and then collapsed into a, a single being. Now, that's not necessarily uh, bad. You know, it's not necessarily wrong it, it, because it's an imaginative personification. Now, we personify all the time. Right? And it's, not, it's good. I mean, if you have, there's an old family keepsake which reminds you of your parents or your grandparents and they're dead now uh, and, and they've, it was passed down through the family to you. And you come upon it one day, and it all of a sudden, you know, this flood of memories comes rushing in on you. And you're back in your family home where you grew up, and your father's there, or your mother, or your grandparents. Are, and you talk to it, right? You talk to it. You say, hey, here I am. Wherever you are, <laughs> I'm here. You put, we, or... or uh, a tree that is really beautiful and means something to you or where something important in your life occurred or a plant or an animal. I mean, we, we personify things all the time. And that's wonderful. It's productive. So long as you know that you're personifying. Right? So those, it's, it's, it's a symbol. Uh, but we know that we're, we're speaking symbolically. The problem in or with orthodoxy, with orthodox theism, is it's reified the personification. You know, it's turned it into a real being. Turned it, it's turned it into somebody. And then when that happens, it's, it's terrifying. He knows everything, can do everything, and we ask him for help when we need something. And if it doesn't go our well, way, our way, you say, well, he knows what he's doing. It's a mystery. I'm, I'll just go along with it. It's and, and then he becomes someone who's going to punish you if if you don't do what he wants. <laughs> and then you've got the, what uh, the problem I've got right now that I'm using the he is he well it can't be a he or it can't be she well it must be it well it can't be it because it is lower than a person so it's not he it's not she it's not it what what the hell is <laughs> <laughs> fair fair enough as as my friend Catherine Keller. My friend Kevin Keller says, it doesn't care what you call it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do, I find it, I find it interesting because one of the things that, and Nat can back me up on this because we have the same father. One of the things he would say to us as we were trying to grapple with our faith tradition or religion is, I don't think God would make it hard. I think he would make it, or there I go using the he, but uh, I think they would make it simple. And whenever Christianity gets in the way, they make it hard. Like there's all these hoops 
and lessons and mazes that we have to go through. Well, because it's always so, presented as like secret knowledge that you have to somehow fight to get. Right. And I, I, you know, I guess I could blame my dad or thank him for stepping me off the, that cliff towards finding a better connection to the divine. And that was that if there is a God, God would not make it hard to find them. And, but, but religion has a really good history of making it hard to find the divine because it's only their way. And that, that was, that was my big wake up call was maybe, maybe this isn't that hard, right? I mean, maybe, uh, maybe yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I put a bunch of roadblocks in my own way. Yeah. Yeah. A relig- yeah. Religion makes, religion sets up a, um, Kierkegaard put it really well. He said um, he wants to write. He wanted to write books that would move people to embrace God and stand face to face to God. And he said he didn't. He didn't want to interfere with their God relationship. And so he said he had a problem. Was the problem was how could he write a book which would say, "Be yourself before God, and don't listen to me." But if right. you read his book and you say, oh, I'm going to do what Kierkegaard said. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, right. We all want so, to, you know, be more like Kierkegaard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, so then religion gets in the way. So religion, religion makes, sets itself up as the, the thing to do. Whereas religion should be iconic. It shouldn't be, an, it, 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 tends, it becomes an idol. It becomes a thing in itself, the self-affirming self-sustaining institution and, and body of doctrine, which becomes an idol instead of an icon, which gets out, gets out of the way so that we can enter into the what, what's really going on in all of this. And, and you can see in the figure of Jesus, the hist- particularly if you try to get sort back to the historical figure, he was not an institutional guy. He wasn't. He, he got in trouble because he was not. You know, he got in trouble because he he called the powers to be in, and put them in question. But then it 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 reified. It reified. It became it became an icon. I mean, it became an idol. And then you always have the, the you know the two. You, you know, you have to be careful that you don't overgeneralize. You you always have the two sides of this. You know, this the more rigid side, which where people identify with that authoritarian structure, and and persuade themselves that they they're speaking with the mind of God. That they've got God on their side. But then there's always this other side of uh, people who are searchers and who affirm, uh, as you say, the the apophatic. Uh, the unknown, and so you speak of the mystery we call God. Then, then these all the this whole tradition, all this um, apparatus that's been handed down to us in the history of theology and the history of the church becomes transparent and fragile. And here comes that word, deconstructible. But, but, but the the notion of be, of being deconstructible is that there's something there. Right, something worth being deconstructed, right? There's something worth going, digging. That's why at the beginning of this book, I make a distinction between the bridge builders, people who are trying to build a bridge from earth to heaven because they think God's up there, and the ground diggers who, who realize that God is here, or that God is the ground to being. And if you dig deep enough into anything, you'll hit theological ground, whether it's science or art or everyday life or whether you're a nurse or a pastor or a teacher or whatever it is, the depth dimension of that practice is where the divine is. God, because God's the divine, if you're going to use this word divine, or God. God is that divine energy or source or foundation or matrix. To me, the beautiful way about the way that you're describing all of this is, is that then it's, it, it's actually no longer married to any particular language. We could decide tomorrow that the word divine is no longer useful or no longer descriptive in the way that we want it to, and we can move off of that, right? So when, when, when religion becomes more concretized and our, ide- our ideations of God become idolatrous, really, like as we've just constructed this, or we've, as like Peter Rollins or somebody might say, we've objectified God, right? We've turned him into this 
thing and placed him in a distant heaven somewhere. At some point, then people start defending the language of God and start getting really upset if you don't use the right words. But it sounds to me like what we're, right? I mean, it's like, I, I, I really not made, even at some point. It just happens okay. practically as soon <laughs> as happens. you're out of the gate. <laughs> right. So as soon as you say, I'm no longer comfortable with the word um, evangelical. I know what it means really. I know how it's actually been used for the last 30 years. I can't be that. You know, I, I don't think it's salvageable as a word that's descriptive for me. So I no longer call myself that. That's fine. There's other words that describe what, what, what I think God means to me and, and what I think it means to be evangelical in the true sense. What you're saying is also the, the, the proper way to speak about in the Catholic tradition, tradition. That's what a tradition is. It's this changing vocabulary and this re, rethinking, rephrasing, reinventing, reimagining. But there's there something there to reimagine. Absolutely. Yeah, the word, word tradition means to hand over, hand it across. So as we hand it across, it gets reinterpreted, I would hope, as it goes along. And just doesn't remain this rigid thing, right? Wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to avoid reinterpreting it. No. Yeah, I mean, look, not just passing the, it. the people who wrote, people who wrote the Gospels thought that the Earth was the center of the world. It it reached about as far as, far as Spain, and then that that was its, that was its outer western edge, and God was literally in the heavens above, and and then there were demons down below in the fire below, down below. I mean, that's, this is what they thought. They actually thought that, and Jesus thought that, and everybody wrote, everybody active in the New Testament thought that, and they thought there was a battle going on between the demons and the kingdom and the powers of, the, of God, the angels, over us. And Jesus was sent into that battle to settle the, the hash of the, the, the powers of darkness. That's what they thought. Now, and then by the time you get to the fourth century, it's Greek metaphysics. I mean, it's, 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 it's Neoplatonism. And by the time you get to the 14th century, it's, or 13th century, it's a very complicated, complex, advanced, academic, scholastic world. Copernicus comes along and messes everything and up, right? Says, no. And Luther comes along and says, no, 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 it can't be that. That's not the New Testament. Jesus never read Plato. Yeah. So it, it keeps tra- transmuting, mutating, keeps mutating. And if it stops that, it's like a plant that stops growing. It just dies. So at one point when Derrida and I was at Villanova, he, we were interviewing him. We, we would do these roundtables with him. You would never let him give a talk because if he gave a talk, it'd kill you. you know? <laughs> I'd be like that guy in the scriptures that like fell out a window and died because Paul wouldn't shut up. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. He would go on for two, three hours. Honestly. Oh, man. And nobody knew what he was talking about. You know, I didn't know. I wouldn't know what he was talking about. People, specialists wouldn't is, know. Is what, he, le- is he, he lecturing in about. French at this point? Well, we've done, yeah, I've, I've heard him do that too. And then he's even worse because. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt, but go ahead. But so, well, what you do is you interview. You, know, you ask him questions, and so we, when, when one of the interviews we did with him at Villanova was uh, when we first established PhD program, and we we were asking him about uh, tradition and institutions, you know, because we were starting this new PhD program. And he said, uh, he said, he said, look, he says, I'm a very conservative person. And, and everybody laughed. Here's <laughs> the, the, the father of deconstruction. You know, he's fucking have horns and you know, big teeth. And he says, I'm, I'm a very conservative person. And uh, after the laughter subsided, he says, no, 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 I'm serious. He says, because the only way to conserve a tradition is to deconstruct it. Because uh, to, to deconstruct something is to give it a future. It's to reopen it, to expose it to the to the possible to the possible, to what's ahead, to what's coming. And if you don't do that, it'll 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 close up and and die off. So deconstruction is the way to conserve something, and it's genuinely true. Like right at this moment, I think one of the great challenges for not just Christianity but any religious tradition is what's going on in artificial intelligence work which is really profoundly transforming our understanding of ourselves and what's going on in uh, science. The the transformation of our understanding of the the cosmos and in quantum theory, 
where, you know, you see that what's underneath what looks like a pretty regular sequence of events in ordinary experience is a sea of probabilities. And even things that don't make any sense in terms of ordinary experience, like this quantum entanglement and stuff like that. Now, I think religion, if it, if it wants to be around uh, in another 100 years or 50 years, provided we don't destroy ourselves in the meantime, is going to have to come to grips with that. Because the, the distinction, what, what, after Einstein says matter and energy are, are convertible, what happens to the distinction between matter and spirit? Matter and spirit, body and soul, are impressionistic categories. And there's, there is there's a deep science of human intelligence being uncovered, in, not only in brain science, but in artificial intelligence theory, and in the way they're starting to come together. That is just completely waylaying any notion of a soul. The human soul. The reason we can think and reflect is because we have a soul. I mean, that is mythological thinking. It is mythological thinking. So I think the future that religion has to expose itself to is is there, and it it better shape up. And and that's in, in the, when you look at the history of of the church, you see that that's what what happens. It keeps it, for, it gets forced to change. It does, doesn't seem to want to change on its own. It has to get forced into it. But and if it doesn't, it's it's done. It's done for. So the question, the question that interests me right now is, you know, if what they're saying about the universe is true, what is what does that do with God? Because the original way of thinking about God was geocentric and theocentric, and, and, and all of that is just well, it's garbage, right? I mean, it's it's very. I mean, it's beyond questionable. I mean, but it strikes me as strange. So I, I sometimes think of a parallel between, you know. Say the say the Christian Enlightenment, you know, which I think I know we call it the Enlightenment, but it was it was it had its it had its foundations in I think Christian philosophy and Christian thought. Um, There was this sort of Renaissance of 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 thinking that is being quashed by religious fundamentalism that now is finds itself as anti science, finds itself as anti intellectual, and I I think what I, I look I look to Islam and what's happened to Islam in the last hundred years. And say, well, there was a civilization. There's a there's a religion that, you know, not too far in its distant past, experienced its own renaissance. Uh, we wouldn't have modern mathematics without Muslim scholars. We would, there's so many things that they were, but re- religious fundamentalism killed all of that progress. And I'm like, what I see is us heading that direction. There are there are very toxic sections. Religion, religion is, yeah, and then that, which just means that educated people will just leave it behind. Yeah, and that's and you're exactly right, and and you wonder why certain parts of Europe are, you know, ninety nine percent or whatever it is, you know, post Christian, you know, and I don't think it's because they're not spiritual. I don't think they've left spirituality behind. I don't think they've, you know, rejected the concept of God outright. Am I? I'm not sure I'm right about that. But that's my sense of it. I mean, well, a lot of them have. I, I mean, I think a fair number of them have. I think a fair number of intellectuals think that the, whatever use this word God has had in the past, it's it's served its purpose, and now it's now it's just a nemesis. I mean, it's it's a it's a nemesis to democracy. It's a de- nemes, nemesis to science, and it really should we really should just it's you know as the the the, the new atheists they're, I think they're fairly old atheists would be asked me but it's, <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it's it's poison you know it's really good. So the Hitchens of the world and the Dawkins of <laughs> right but see, it's not poison it's it's you know what Derrida says it's the poison the the the, the pharmacon is the 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 drug that will either that, that will kill you unless that will save you unless it kills you first right it's the it's the promise threat. It's the it's the drug that may save you, but it, it at the same time has the possibility of, of poisoning you. So thing, things have this kind of in, in, the intrinsic under uh, what he calls what Derrida calls undecidability, which is which is why I don't give up on the word God and why I I, I don't associate myself with the hermeneutic with with uh, de- the death of God. Theory, the, the death of God stuff is a is a kind of provisional tactic. It's like beginning that book by saying God is does not exist. 
But it's not where I'm going. It's not what I'm interested in. I'm, what I'm interested in is what's still living and vital and life-giving in the name of God. If if it is, you know, maybe it's not. Maybe we're. Maybe I'm just an old guy who's you know grew up as. Let's talk about this word maybe though, because that figures into a lot of of your theology. There it is. Uh, Perhaps, right? Perhaps. Maybe that, but that's, but that's a per, that's a powerful word. That is, it's a great word. It is, it is sorely missing from our lexicon in religious speak, right? Because we're so hell bent on certitude, and we're so hell bent on on knowing, and somehow it's weird that a people of faith have become so fixated on what they can know. And necessity, as opposed to possibility. Yeah, and what they can, and what they can then write down and, and, and somehow, you know, immortalize on, you know, that's why, it's, it's why, you know, bibliolatry is such a, such a scourge to me. It's like, okay, could we love the written word? Cause it, you know, somehow that's immutable. Um, even though we read it a hundred thousand different ways, but, but talk about that possibility because you have this, this, this sort of theology of perhaps, you know, that, that I think rests us from that, that, that need for, for certainty and all, all that stuff. Right. My friend Catherine Keller puts it. There, there are a couple of people now. We, we, we again, we, we must not overgeneralize this. This notion of possibility and perhaps is, has been recognized, and even in the tradition. If you go back to Nicholas of Cusa, for example, he uh, he defined God as ipsum posse. Now, normally in the tr- scholastic tradition, Thomas Aquinas, you would have defined God as ipsum esse. Being, being itself, whereas Nicholas Cusa defined God as possibility itself, ipsum posse, pure infinite possibility. Now, he he, he the word posse can mean can also mean power. So he was he wasn't actually rejecting the doctrine of omnipotence, but he was saying that this omnipotent being is a being where or in whom anything is possible. So relative to us, God is this uh, infinite expanse of possibility. And then in our own times, uh, in the United States, uh, Richard Carney has written a book called The God Who May Be, and Catherine Keller has this book called The Cloud of the Impossible. And... I think the you know the the uh, sort of maestro of this whole thing is Derrida, and uh, his notion of the perhaps of it's in in French it is literally put être able to be put être not et, so you can play with être being and put être able to be poss- possible being we we have the um, the perhaps word is an Anglo-Saxon word. The closest thing we have to the putetra, there it is, putetra, is maybe. Maybe. One way to put it, and this is, this is the way Catherine Keller puts it, and I think it's, it's fantastic. Instead of thinking about God as omnipotence, think about God as omnipotentiality. Um, the omnipotential rather than the omnipotent. The um, omnipossibility. And then you're thinking about God in terms of the future and the thematic, it's a thematic then of hope. Deconstruction is a philosophy of hope, of expectation, of dreaming of the impossible, of the possibility of the impossible. So the the, the possibility that is the most uh, fetching for us, the most luring, is the possibility of what is or seems to be impossible. Right? So the, the possibility, if, if you wanted, I won't say a definition of God, because that would be the wrong word, but a characterization of God. I think you can do no better than this notion of the possibility of the impossible. The meaning of the name of God is to give us a symbol in which we can experience the possibility of the impossible. 
And it's got scriptural foundation, you know. It's with God, all things are possible. Right? That's that occurs several different times in, in the New Testament and in, in the and in the Jewish scripture. God is the possibility of possible. For for us, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. But now we don't mean omnipotence. We mean an open horizon of expectation. I wrote a book called "Hoping Against Hope," trying to capture that that theme of expectation and hope. And the future. So in Derrida, the this word event, which is so important for him, the the French word is l'événement, comes from the word a venir, to come out of, to eventuate, to happen. And so it literally means the to come, venir, venire, the to come. And then the word for the future in, in French is l'avenir. So the future is the to come. Literally, when you say the future in French, you're saying the to come. And the deconstruction, the whole apparatus of rethinking, reimagining, uh, micrologically examining the tensions inside of a, a text or an institution, that whole undertaking is oriented toward the future toward restoring the future to this text or institution or practice, whatever it is, exposing it to its future, which which scares it, right? I mean, that's that's uh, scary to think about that. <laughs> yeah. Because the future could be a disaster. I mean, Derrida will, will, tell, will say that the event may be awful, you know? I mean, Donald Trump was an event, right? So it, it could be it could be a catastrophe. But if you don't risk the catastrophe, you won't the, the event won't you, you won't allow the event. Well, this seems to me to connect to the idea of God as as the great I am, right? As we 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 want to uh, we want to put God in a box, and when you say the God that God is the great I am that is that opens the box to all these possibilities. I am the potential. I am the future. I am it, 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 it doesn't, it doesn't allow for a very specific, like, I don't know what that means. The great I am, but I could fill in the blank, right? What, what I was going to say is, do you want to, do you want to put it that way? Do you want to say that, uh, that God is the great I am? Because, you know, when you go back to the Hebrew, and he says, Lord, who will I say has sent me, tell him I who am, has said you. The Hebrew has uh, no verb tenses. Mm, okay. And so in the tr- Middle Ages, they translated that as ego sum qui sum, I am who am. And then that meant I am eternally identical with myself. I am the eternal self-same. But, you could just as well translate that Hebrew word. This is, I mean, I don't know any Hebrew. I'm just, this is what I've, re, I've read. This is, what, this is what progressive theologians say. You could, you could better translate it as saying, I will be who I will be. I like, I even like that. I like that yeah. better. That's well, that better. brings yeah. it back yeah. to that infinite possibility, that, right? Right. And then you, then you really do have a God of possibility. And then the Hebrews actually, you know, the, remember, the Hebrews never read Plato. Right? They don't know any of this stuff about eternity and time and all and changing and unchanging. They don't have that. They they think they were historical beings. They were they thought in terms God as the as the God of their people and their story and their God's part of their story. And so God's the God's God is a promise. God makes a promise. And so it's it's futural and it's waiting for the Messiah. It's it is a it's built around the notion of messianic expectation. It's got nothing to do with eternity. It's Greek metaphysics that stuff about eternity. It's 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 about the future and the promise, the expectation. And so Christianity, which picks up this messianic thing, should be understood to be the memory and the promise of Jesus. Period. Whatever that is, wherever that's going to take us, you know, no, we we don't need clerics, we don't need these structures. Well, you do need structures, of course. I take that back. I'm going too far. You you need some kind of structure 
because otherwise the name of Jesus would just been forgotten. If there were no books, there was, were no, if there was no tradition to carry it along, to pass it along, then there wouldn't be any. He would have just been a prophet, Jewish prophet, who spoke truth to power on the high holidays, and the Romans took him out, and nobody would have ever heard of him. But so there were stories told about him, and then the stories were written down, and then structures were formed around. So, so you can't do without structures. If you didn't have structures, you wouldn't have anything to deconstruct. <laughs> <laughs> We'd all be out of a job. What we, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't be out of a job. It would out of business. But what it, the living, vital part of it is this, this memory and expectation, this memory and hope, it is, and it's primarily futural. So when we look to the future, when we look to the promise, it's always a promise that we've inherited. So it's coming from somewhere, and it's a, and it's open ended. It's open ended. That's that's what that's what deconstruction. Deconstruction is a philosophy of open endedness. It's a philosophy of open structures, not closed structures. Open systems, not closed systems. That was Derrida's original debate with. In, back in the 1960s, very technical debate in of this book that he wrote called Of Grammatology. He was debating with a structuralist who said that there were deep structures that formed cultures and said that every culture was going to be an instance of these deep structures. And that was, and that, and that, that was true of language, first and foremost. And Derrida's debate was, nope. The language is an open system. Language mutates. Language is... The only, the only time you can make a system out of a language is when the language is dead, when, when nobody is going to come along and make a metaphor or use a word in a new way or write a poem or say something metaphoric that nobody, nobody ever used a word like that before or coin a new word. So the only way you could have a, a closed language, a, a structuralist language would be a dead language because you could then... You could tabulate all the uses of the word, put them in a pile, and say, that's what the word means. And it's going to stay that way because there's nobody around to speak the language anymore. So deconstruction is a philosophy of openness, a philosophy of hope, a philosophy of affirmation of the future. And so it's got this sort of Jewish messianic uh, character to it. But it's a messiah who's never going to show up. (laughs) Right. Right. The messiah will never be present. Wow, that's so good. Because once, once... once the future becomes present, then there is no future and we're all dead. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I like it. I mean, you, you mentioned, like, as you're talking about all this stuff, that, that all this stuff carries with it an inherent risk, right? Because there is the risk that this infinite possibility, some of them could be terrible. And so it's not, and maybe that's why on some level we retreat to these sort of bastions of certitude because the other stuff scares the hell out of me because it really could all go wrong. Faith is a risky proposition, but that's why I think uh, that's why I'm so frustrated with the the, the modern evangelical church, which is, which is my home church. So I feel we've we've said many times before. I feel I feel comfortable critiquing that tradition because it's my tradition. What 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 drives me crazy about it is that that need for assurance because there's I think because many of them are so scared to either lose their lose their own personal assurance, which which is scary, or even you know, for some, it's the it's the it's the loss of identity. It's the loss of of purpose and life. I mean, I mean, if you've built your whole identity around this whole need for it, the, the structure, and that structure goes away, well, now what, right? Yeah, that's right. You don't have any more guardrails, and you're you're on your own. You have you feel like you've got nothing to fall back on. It's yeah. There's a, a tremendous amount of fear built into the word orthodoxy. You know that that we're talking about. The mysteries of our lives, you know, the mystery of being, the mystery of the cosmos, the mystery of life and death. And then somebody comes along and says, they got it right. <laughs> they, got, they got it. They got the orthodoxia, you know, the right opinion. How, where'd you get that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How'd you do that? So, yeah, there's a tremendous amount of fear built into that. I mean, it is scary too because it's oh, absolutely. Guard the guardrails. It's sort of like being Kierkegaard says it's living over uh, forty forty thousand fathoms. You know, it's you're out on the floating on the top of a deep ocean. Yeah, just this huge chasm beneath you, and you know, and then but but if but if you're if you're there and you are then 
forced is not the right word, but you're sort of, but you're put in that position of having to then um, actually, actually exercise a faith that is risky. Uh, to me, that's much richer than, you know, any dogmatic proclamation, you know, and that's the one thing that's, as I go down, you know, what I, we, we talked offline a little bit because I think there's a lot of people listening. There will be a lot of people listening who would understand the term deconstruction, how we're using it, but who may not know a thing about Derrida. And I, and I, and I know there are, I've been critiqued by some who are like, man, you've just hijacked this term. This whole new deconstruction movement has just hijacked this term. And I can't say that we haven't. And I, my, my knowledge of, of Derrida is cursory at best. But what I have seen seems to be, at least by and large, in that same, in, in the same vein. The ones who I think are doing it correctly are doing exactly what we've been talking about. There's a, it's not a demolition. It's not wanton destruction. It is a dismantling of something that we feel like needs to be examined and repurposed and rethought it needs to evolve. I like the way that you put that. The whole idea of, of, of there being something future to look forward to, to me, speaks about the evolutionary potential of this thing we all call faith. Can it be reinterpreted? It must be reinterpreted, right? Absolutely. Yeah, you don't, in deconstruction, things don't have an essence. They have a history. Yeah, okay. Right? Fair enough. You say, what's the essence of Christianity? I don't know. It's not over yet. I say <laughs> the same thing about God. What, what, is, what do you mean by God? You say, oh, I don't know. Does, do, well, well, does God exist? I don't know. We'll, we'll see if it's... it's because it's a history, it's a process, and it's a, for me, it's a pro, what the name of God is is in fact a name of a hope and expectation, and whether that will uh, eventuate uh, remains to be seen. And we we, uh, as one philosopher puts it, have to make ourselves part of the history of God, of making 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 God happen in the world, because God's not a being somewhere. God is a hope an expectation, a promise, a lure, an energy, a memory. It's also a memory. Uh, so the promise of justice is the memory of the justice that has not been kept in the past. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a remem- it's, a, it's a promise of a, which remembers unkept promises in the past. So it's, it's completely uh, penetrated by the time. It's a, it's, Deconstruction is a theory of time, I think. Everything you're saying resonates deeply. I love it. It's a, I do, I do want to be respectful of your time. I know we've had you here for a little over an hour, so it might be a good place to start to wind down. What do you think, John, Jack? But let me say this before we, before we do wrap up. If you have not read, um, and now I'm speaking to my audience, all, all three of you who are listening, um, no, if, the, if you haven't read, if you have not read anything by John Caputo, I think this would be a great, Primer. I think it's a good jumping off point. Um, I think it's, I think it's written with that, that audience in mind. I think you're going to love the way it's written. I think it, his prose is, is approachable. Um, the, uh, the ideas are, are, are prescient. You know, that I think there's, I, I love that I can go back and read stuff that you wrote, that you wrote 20 years ago and find that they are still as prescient today as they ever were. I mean, I think you were borderline prophetic in some of what you were talking about 20, 25 years ago. But, um, but this would be a really good jumping off point to kind of get into the head of John Caputo and, and start to explore some of these ideas. Cause we didn't even really talk about the theology of weakness, which to me harkens back to Luther and the theology of the cross and, and this sort of idea of left-handed power versus, you know, I, anyway, so there's lots and lots and lots and lots of, of, of things there to explore. But, um, man, I wish you nothing, nothing but continued success with this book. I hope it just sells a million copies and they end up putting you on Oprah or something. That'd be great. <laughs> if it sells a million copies, I'll give you guys a cut. That would be great. All right, you have it. You heard it here first. Uh, we have a verbal commitment for. He didn't specify what that cut would be. It would be dollar. <laughs> but I really do. I really do appreciate you. And, and again, not to blow smoke, but you have been such a big part of my spiritual formation the last couple decades that I can't overstate how much you've meant to me. And I just want to make sure and give it, have a chance to say that. I appreciate you. Well, thank you very much, Annette. It's a, it's a pleasure. And um, what I would say to you two is uh, keep on keeping on. You know, keep, keep up this, this work. It's, it's tremendously important because you're reaching people with books and you know, more traditional uh, media don't, don't, don't reach. I mean, doing, doing something like this is, 
there's a niche for, for it and getting the word uh, out and getting the sense of deconstruction out that you clearly uh, understand is is very important. It's very important to me to know that uh, you know I've taken Derrida and put him in a form that people who don't spend their whole lives trying to crack it <laughs> to figure it out what it is uh, can get because it's too important to be locked up in, in the library. And you guys are, have, you know, you've uh, laddered the ball to you, and I, you know, I'm delighted to see you're, you're carrying it. And uh, so the work you're doing, I think, is very important, I, and I appreciate your having me here today. Absolutely. That's a good point, too, also, if you because Derrida is dense. I mean, it's, it, is not, it is not for the faint of heart. So, yeah, you said God wouldn't make it hard, but Derrida made it hard. Derrida made it really hard. So <laughs> read, read, uh, read John Caputo and you'll get, um, you'll, you'll get Derrida in a, a, little, a little bit more easier to digest chunks. Right, yeah. Because <laughs> the ideas are not, to me, they're not, they're not way outside. Um, it was just always his, like a lot of his presentation of it was like very dense and difficult and, you know, it's steeped in some of that jargon we talked about earlier. It's like, okay, I got to go to my dictionary 35 times to <laughs> find out what he's talking about. But the new book, um, again, is uh, What to Believe, 12 Radical, I'm sorry, 12 Brief Lessons in Radical Theology. Um, if you want to be challenged, if you want to think about um, some of the stuff in really, really new ways, uh, I don't think you could do better than, than pick this book up. So I highly recommend. John, any parting shots? No, I think, I think you've done it, man. As always, man. Well, you know, I do what I do. I can do the best I can. <laughs> Jack, I appreciate you again. Thank you so much yeah, for taking the time. Really, yeah, yeah. If you well, thanks, thanks uh, to both of you, and good good luck with your work. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit Patreon.com/slash This Is Not Church, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.